Hi everyone and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. I started this podcast for a very simple reason. You can find podcasts on pretty much any topic, but I wasn't aware of any that were focused on public service leaders. So rather than wait for somebody else to do it, I decided to give it a try. I wanted to give public service leaders a platform to tell their stories, to talk about the reforms and innovations they put in place, and to share lessons in leadership. I think this will be particularly interesting for current and future public service leaders, but a lot of the lessons are more broadly applicable. So I hope you enjoy it, and please remember to register on the website to never miss a future episode. This episode is a little different. Normally I speak to public service leaders, but today I speak to Professor Julian Legrand, who is Professor of Social Policy at LSE, but he is far from your typical academic. He's had a long and distinguished career and has worked in policy development with various governments, including a stint in Tony Blair's Number 10 as a senior policy advisor. In our conversation, we touch on what it's like to teach in a university during lockdown and doing that remotely. We talk about what it was like to work in Number 10 and get Julian's views on whether any parallels can be drawn between his experience and the current situation. But we spend most of the time talking about Julian's views on local areas and local economies and how they can recover from the COVID-19 crisis. And in particular, how we can develop a new form of socially conscious capitalism. And Julian has particular ideas on what he calls the hybrid economy, And this is certainly something which will be the focus of a lot of councils as they plot their route to recovery. So let's get started. Julian, you're very welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. Um, I'm sure most of the people listening will know who you are, but for the benefit of those who don't, could you just say a little bit about yourself, please? Well, thank you, Andrew. I'm very happy to be here and to join you for this. I'm uh, an academic, academic at the London School of Economics, I've been an academic uh, for most of my life, but uh, I like to think I've also had a a foot, indeed several feet, in the policy world. Uh, I've advised governments a lot, both nationally and internationally. In the the late great days when we were a member of the European Union, I actually advised the president of the European Commission for a while. But perhaps my most um, interesting role that I had was uh, for two years I was an advisor to Tony Blair at number 10 Downing Street. I was a senior policy advisor on uh, public services and the reform of public services. There's been quite a lot of attention in the press recently about the number 10 operation and I was just really wondering if you could say a little bit about what your experience was when you worked there. Well working in number 10 I found was quite different from the way I expected it to be. I thought that I was I was asked to come in to develop some bright ideas, some good policy ideas to to try and uh, take us through to at the time through the next election. But in practice, I found myself just endlessly firefighting. Right. Uh, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd switch on the radio, the Radio Four, uh, the Today program, and uh, I would hear that there'd been some dreadful problem at a hospital with MRSA. I don't know whether you, your, your listeners will remember MRSA, but it was one of those, it was a problem that all our hospitals were infected with this uh, uh, drug resistant 
bacterium. Right. Um, this antibiotic resistance, and it was an, a major problem. And so I would I would groan slightly at about sort of six fifteen in the morning, and I'd know that my whole day was going to be shot. The, the day I was going to write this long strategic paper uh, that was going to solve all the all the world's problems. Instead, I was going to try and work out what the, what the prime minister should should uh, what he should say about it. Should he say anything about it? Did he need to make a public statement? If so, where should he do it? Should he go and visit the hospital? Uh, all those things. Um, yeah. It was just an endless an endless business of uh, of trying to put out the fires rather than try and build new uh, wonderful policy constructions. Yeah. So you you, you probably have some sympathy for the current occupants trying to deal with this pandemic i do have a lot of sympathy with yeah. it, for the current occupants um i know that all that, that you're you're endlessly running from crisis to crisis um yeah. and uh, it's very difficult to sit down and think at any one point in time yeah uh, what's going on we did have a one good point though we did have an excellent chief of staff it was Jonathan Powell, who was chief of staff. A very he was un, unknown to the public. Um, nothing like some of the present incumbents. The other thing too was about um, Tony Blair himself. Um, he was he he was used to this business of dealing with crises. Um, and I remember once um, he uh, uh, I was panicking about something or other, and uh, he he slapped me on the shoulder and he said, "Look, you know, in a week's time, we'll have moved on to something else." <laughs> don't worry too much about it. And I remember it was very reassuring at the time. Yes. <laughs> I was supposed to be reassuring him, and he was <laughs> very good. So, how has lockdown been for you? Well, it's been very interesting, actually. I mean, I think the the simple answer. I think I felt really quite privileged. I've been able to do two things um, that um, have been really. Uh, really quite productive one is to learn how to teach on zoom and um that is uh uh i must say i was deeply apprehensive about that and i think most of the students that we're teaching were also deeply apprehensive but it's surprising in a way how well that's turned out that um i mean i still don't think it's as good as face-to-face teaching but nonetheless um because partly because of the magic of zoom or these uh these these digital platforms, it's actually turned out to be um to work really rather well. So you you mentioned there, Julian, that you've been doing a lot of virtual teaching, and what's that been like? I mean, I hope the students haven't been turning up in in pajamas to to their virtual lectures. <laughs> well, um, if they have been turning up in pajamas, they haven't switched their cameras off. Um, <laughs> you do occasionally get uh, cameras or cameras get switched off um, or more to the point, when you when you end the session, um, you discover that still a number of off switched cameras are still they, they're still connected. <laughs> so you know, the person has either fallen asleep or uh, or has <laughs> left the occasion. But yeah. in general, I have to say it's not been bad. Um, in fact, it's been a lot better than I thought uh, it would be. Um, the the students seem to enjoy the the interact. You do have personal interactions. You are able to. Uh, to talk, there are these things called breakout rooms where yes. you uh, you break yeah, we out. We use those ourselves, actually. Yeah, they're very useful. Yes, uh, and the students like them a lot, and they they ask for more breakout yeah. rooms. And the other interesting things too is that um, it appears that the whole process of taking a course uh, they seem to find much less stressful 
uh, if yeah. it's online than uh, than they do at home. We're getting much fewer requests for counselling and advice and help. Now, whether that's because they're at home and hence sort of feel more supported, um, I don't know, or because the stress of actually coming into campus, interacting with everybody. I mean, I think it's obviously enjoyable, but it's also quite high stress. Yeah. Uh, mm. And do you think it'll change the way university teaching happens for good? I do. I do. Yeah. Um, I think that um, we've all discovered that uh, online is is not bad. I still we I think most of us still think that it's preferable to teach in person, but nonetheless, I can see that there's going to be I think there's going to be a lot more online teaching and a much more mix, mixing of the two. But what I've also spent some time doing is um, a subject that's fairly dear to your heart, which is thinking about the reform of public services and in particular the development of what we call. Uh, the hybrid economy. Okay. And what exactly is the hybrid economy? Well, when policymakers are thinking about what kind of organisation they want to provide their service, their social services, or indeed actually broader in the economy, um, they've traditionally relied on any of three types of, of units, so to speak. There's been the government agency, the government bureaucracy that, that provides the service. There's been uh, sometimes they relied on charities or non-profits uh, and sometimes um, and often very controversially, they've relied uh, on profit making firms, on private firms. So and there's been lots of controversy, as we know, about privatisation in the NHS uh, and so on. Um, yeah. Recently, though, there's developed a I, I hesitate to call it a new form of organisation because for reasons I'll explain in a moment but. These are what we organizations we call hybrids, which are not only motivated to perform a public service, but they're also motivated to make a profit uh, or more generally to make a surplus, um, which distributes sometimes distribute to shareholders or more often um, reinvest in the business. So unlike, say, the other organizations I was talking about, such as um, a profit-making firm, private firm, or a government agency, they have two objectives. They're both trying to improve the world. They're, try they're trying to create a better world, have a social impact. And at the same time, they're trying to be um, financially robust yeah. uh, to make profit. And so, so profit-maximizing firm, private firm, basically has one objective, which is that of private firm. And uh, a government agency is trying to improve the the aim is trying to improve social welfare yeah. uh, and to improve. Um, but these organisations are trying to do both. Yes. So is that, is that that's really interesting, and that's a that's a theme as you indicated is very close to my heart as well. So the way the way I think about it is quite similar to that actually, where. You have the public sector, which has a very strong public service ethos and a very clear set of objectives that are not profit motivated at all. You've got the, pri the pure private sector in the traditional sense that is quite profit motivated, but also has a lot of space for innovation. And I think we, what we're talking about here is that middle ground where you have, to use your language, the hybrid organizations, which which take the really strong public service ethos from the public sector, but also take commercial discipline and entrepreneurialism and innovation from the private sector and hopefully meld it together in a in a magical formula. Uh, indeed, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
It's actually all part of a sort of broader phenomenon that stretches outside the kind of the what we think of the traditional public sector. On the one hand, you've got you've got charities uh, that are engaged in trading arms. I mean, mm. Oxfam shops, for example. And then you've got uh, then you've got if you move along a kind of spectrum, you've got social enterprises, so-called social enterprises, community interest companies. We might talk a bit about those in a moment. And then at the other end of the spectrum, so to speak, you've got large corporates, um, but often with heavy um, corporate social responsibility yeah. uh, divisions. Unilever is very interesting. They've they they have ex- explicitly committed themselves to uh, various measures to improve the environment. Of course, given that a lot of their products don't exactly improve the environment, that's not <laughs> surprising. Yeah. Um, but uh, and they've got some very elaborate measures that they are taking to try to reduce their negative impact on the environment and indeed turn themselves into a positive force for good, both socially and environmentally. So in some sense, you've got you're seeing this kind of this this movement away from a kind of narrow focus on one particular aim or another, but um, across a, a range of aims, a range of social and environmental aims and financial sustainability, and indeed, as you were saying, sort of a desire to be efficient, a desire to be effective, and a desire to be innovative, and that's very important. We might be seeing something of a kind of, revolution is too, perhaps too strong a word, but a real transformation of the way we think about capitalism. Yeah. Uh, that we are actually, that really right across the board, you're seeing organisations that have traditionally been particularly on the corporate side, heavily focused on maximising shareholder value and on the charity side, simply thinking about the well-being of the people they're trying to serve. Yeah. You're seeing a movement towards a sort of, um, not quite to the middle, but to, a, to a, as I was saying earlier, to a, uh, a new agreement in some ways to work in these all these different ways. Well, one of the, um, so what, one of the things that, interests me is what government's role in encouraging all of this is and you and I were both involved in the, the mutual support program which was a program that was predominantly in the coalition years and was a central government funded program that encouraged the development of staff led mutuals to deliver public service very much in that middle ground as we talked about there and one of the things that I've considered it'd be great to get your thoughts on it, was that the organizations in that middle ground, if government can support them enough, they're they're not going to on their own change the whole nature of capitalism. But if they can if there can be enough of them and they get to a certain tipping point, then the public sector will have to become more entrepreneurial in order to compete. The private sector will have to become more social in order to keep themselves relevant as well. So it could be that there is a role for government here to encourage the growth of that middle ground, as you describe it, till it reaches a certain point when it has a macro impact. Yes, indeed. Um, and um, I, I think the whole area of public service mutuals or more, uh, or more generally public service social enterprises is, is a very important one and one one that as you say both you and I have been steadily involved in. Well you'll you'll be very pleased to know that Francis Maud, who as you know was the minister who was very much encouraging 
more more uh, public service mutuals has mm-hmm. been doing a number of interviews recently where he specifically referenced it as one of the programs that he's really proud of and that we should see more of it. So who knows, perhaps. Um, so thinking back to your point about that hybrid economy and these new types of organizations, well, not new, but just encouraging that type of organization that is more of a, a mixed model. Um, obviously, one of the government's big agendas is the leveling up agenda. And what has become very clear, if you look around the country, that there are lots of areas, particularly in the so-called red wall areas in the middle of the country where where they voted conservative for the first time ever, where the local economy has been pretty decimated, not just over time, but particularly during the pandemic. I wonder, is this model of yours that you're talking about, is that a, is that something that could play a real part in the levelling up agenda to give communities more sense of ownership of their area? Well, I would think so. Um, in fact, I think, again, you probably got a bit of experience in this area um, about what one might call bridging organisations, organisations that have put in both camps. And many of these hybrids that we've been talking about have actually been have actually been working in this uh, in this kind of area um, to to bridge indeed the kind of the gap between the public sector and the private sector uh, and to try to rebuild the communities. And actually, uh, I, I've been reading an article of yours, and you want why don't you tell us a little bit about it because that was quite interesting, an idea of um of a bridge community. Yeah. Uh, so th- this was an article that Chris Wright, who's the chief executive of Catch Twenty Two, and I wrote for the MJ. It's essentially making the case that across the country, the areas which, and this is unfortunately this is anecdotal evidence at the minute. It's not based on any f- firm study, but I ha- we have talked to a lot of people. And the areas where they already had a vibrant and active voluntary community sector were able to respond with more speed and more impact than areas where they didn't have locally based community organizations in existence pre-pandemic. And the most effective organizations are the ones, as you describe it and we describe in, in the article, uh, those community bridge organizations that are substantial enough that they, that they are contracted to, to deliver real public services as in commissioned by the public sector, but they also do so much more as in their, their reason for being is not just to deliver that contract and make a profit. It's to be in the community, to do more for the community, and any surplus they make gets ploughed back into the the community. So, um, you know, I, I interviewed on a previous podcast Leslie Hager, who's the director of children's services in Sandwell, and she was making it very clear that the presence of a very vibrant voluntary and community sector in Sandwell really helped in in their COVID response. So in terms of the resilience of an area, I think what you're talking about is is really important. And it shows up again in the resilience of these organisations more generally. Um, There's quite a lot of evidence looking at cooperatives, for example, about their resilience in times of economic recession. Uh, And they um, survive much better than conventional profit-making enterprises. And I think, and as you say, there's now a certain amount of anecdotal evidence coming out of the resilience in, in the face of the pandemic. Yeah. For all the reasons you've just been saying, these organizations are able to, are able to ride, um, these, uh, waves of 
of economic depression waves of uh, public health disaster um, yeah. and indeed sort of surf them. Maybe, maybe I'm taking this little terms <laughs> of the metaphor, but, but they're certainly able to help, the, as you say, help the organisation, to help the local communities survive um, many of these uh, rather dreadful health and economic impacts. Yeah. So we've talked about mutuals. So let's leave, leave mutuals. What can the government do, do you think, to try and encourage the emergence of more of these types of organisations? And do they have a role or is this a local thing that needs to be driven locally? What's your view on that? Well, in a way, the government has had an important role already in that it has um, um, delivered what we in the, in the trade could tend to call enforced hybridity. When they set up the... Um, internal kind of quasi-market in the health service, for example, they made hospitals, in a sense, become independent and become financially responsible, but at the same time, of course, still contracting to give a a good public service. Academy schools. Academy schools are not unlike this kind of organisation. Again, given considerable responsibility of their own finances, their own budget and so on, but at the same time, of course, required to provide a public service. Um, So I think one thing the government can do is is encourage a little more of this, of, of help create these kind of organisations. Um, but I suppose there, there are other factors too. I mean, um, we've talked a lot about the um, contributions that these kind of organisations can make, hybrids can make, but, but of course they also face a number of tensions and problems. Um, for example, I mean, suppose you've got a hybrid that is trying to um, make a profit, but at the same time, and uh, have a a positive social and environmental return. And it's competing with other organisations that are simply Mm. profit-making. And and suppose, and and unfortunately it does seem to be largely true, that in actually in trying to make, improve things socially or environmentally, the the hybrid incurs costs. Mm-hmm. Costs that actually the profit-making firm can avoid by simply just simply not doing it, not doing those, uh, the, not not curbing its activities that are, that are going to be environmentally damaging, not um, subsidising the goods that are going to be environmentally beneficial or indeed socially beneficial. Yeah. Uh, so um, in, in that sort of world, that competitor can drive out the private sector competitor can drive out the hybrid. Um, yeah. So the government can can help by actually levelling the playing field, by actually making it a little more appropriate for, a little more easier, facilitating in various ways um, the hybrid to undertake its activities. We saw that a bit in the contracting rules for uh, public service mutuals, because um, if, when, if a company, if a profit-making company was competing directly with a, a cooperative or a, a socially responsible firm, um, that was actually um, the, the profit-making firm could quite easily win the contract by simply offering a lower price, not engaging in all these socially desirable activities. And in many ways, the government has actually moved towards the Social Value Act. It ha- yes, I mean, it, it has, it certainly has moved, it has, um, but there are unfortunately still examples where community service providers in, in the NHS uh, who are community interest companies and uh, are often staff owned, but certainly, so, uh, certainly social enterprises have been forced out quite recently by private sector competitors who are simply offering 
a lower price that would be completely unsustainable for the social enterprise provider. So it's still happening. And well, that's precisely the problem. It's hard for commissioners who have huge budget deficits to plug. They they have they're being pressurised to cut costs, and it's just sometimes very very difficult for them. Indeed, indeed. Well, that's precisely the kind of dilemma that I was talking about. And it is one where the government can have a role. Yeah. Um, the government have an important role in making sure that these these social enterprises are not disadvantaged in that context. Um, that may involve the government spending money to offer grants or subsidies of various kinds. But but in, in a way, in the long run, it is saving money for the government because these enterprises will do a better job on the environment, a better job, a better social return. And all those things will benefit precisely the wider society and the wider economy that the government is supposed to be representing and um, whose benefit they're supposed to be promoting. So when we're thinking about these hybrid organisations and the hybrid economy more generally, it's impossible not to consider local economies and the impact that COVID has had on local economies and the high street. I wonder if you could say something about that. One of the consequences of COVID is to reinforce the trend. I mean, everybody says this, but I think it's true uh, towards online shopping and away from retail centres. Um, so that means that in some ways, our local high streets have got to rethink their role. Mm. Um, that rethink will come by by looking at they've become places of entertainment, places of enjoyment, uh, cafes, restaurants, community centres. Uh, and so on, perhaps rather than retail centres. Yeah. Uh, and again, this this is the sort of area where social enterprises can play a significant role, particularly developing a kind of community centre, community role, or indeed a, a cafes. One, some of the most interesting um, workers' cooperatives that have been developed, not just in this country but in the states and Canada and elsewhere, have been um, cooperative-run cafes. And restaurants, yeah. and particularly often with a health focus, very much trying yeah. to provide a healthy zone. So, so yes, yeah, so I, 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 I wouldn't write off the high street yet. Um, no. but I think I think we may be in for a rather different kind of high street than the one we're used. That's very interesting. It, it, somebody was telling me. I mean, I don't know a lot about this, but it may have been you. But it, it feels like something you might have said to me. But that in France, the the you know, town centres are much more residential, actually. And, um, you know, whereas here you go into the town centre and it's full of shops. It's a, it, it, and a lot of those are boarded up now. But actually in France, there are fewer shops and the ones that are there are more like cafes, social yeah. gathering places. And there's actually quite a lot of residential space there. Um, you know, people who just want a more relaxed lifestyle away from the city. It's a brilliant place to live. And there's much more of a community with a market and everything. And that's just not that's not our culture at the minute. Indeed. Uh, I don't think it was me that said that, but it's right. something I recognise. Um, you can take it. You, you can claim it if you like it. <laughs> and in fact, um, the um, I mean, I live in Clifton, which is for those of uh, your listeners who may not know, it's a kind of a village suburb of Bristol. Um, at one point it was called... Um, uh, John Betjeman called it the prettiest um, village uh, in Britain. Well, that's, that's overstating it. But it is, uh, it is a combination of residential areas and shops and cafes. In fact, in fact one of the shops, which happens to be a, a wine store, says 
it's got as its blurb over the top of it, the only shop in Clifton that does not serve coffee. <laughs> very good. So, uh, well, so, so that's it's a very pleasant place. Instead, it's a lovely place to walk, and lots of people go there and yeah. uh, and circle. I mean, uh, uh, pre-COVID, of course, and hopefully post-COVID. But yeah. it, that's an example of perhaps what our high streets might eventually look like. Well, we need to make places more like Clifton, by the sounds of it. So, find a way for that. So, if you were to give, if you were to give advice, because there there are the central government policymakers who who listen to this, in order to achieve levelling up and thinking about what you've been saying about these hybrid organisations, what would your advice to them be? What should they be focusing on? Well, I think they should be focusing on programmes uh, that I've suggested to to encourage the growth of such, of such enterprises. Um, yeah. I think maybe even they should be providing training programmes how to do it because as you're a business person, it's not difficult. It's not easy to run a business. No. Um, uh, and um, and many of the people who want to engage in a kind of create a social enterprise um, have are people coming really starting from scratch. They have they yeah. have no idea of what they want to do in terms of the social and environmental returns they want to get. But in trying to read a balance sheet, for example, um, they uh, they find themselves um, adrift. So I think one thing government could do is encouraging programmes that look at that. I should actually declare an interest at this point um, in the, the, the LSE. We do run um, uh, a master's, an executive master's degree in social entrepreneurship, social business and entrepreneurship. Um, which will give you a lot of those skills. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think my colleague David Fairhurst maybe even uh, does a few guest lectures for you, doesn't he? He has taught on this. Indeed, he has. Yes. Yes, that's right. So that's one thing. So I think I think helping these social enterprises compete and to start uh, changing planning rules. Um, planning rules are often very difficult. Actually, as, again, you've probably encountered about about residential use versus retail use versus uh, office space and so on um, in in towns and uh, so actually allowing for the a swift change of those rules and a change of use um, would be another another way of doing it. Um, yeah. So a question that I've got here and one which is very relevant is the whole idea of devolution and where responsibility should sit. Traditionally, in the UK, the government would drive this sort of thing from the centre with a programme and with funding that is quite tightly restricted. But obviously devolution is picking up pace. It's stalled a little bit at the minute. But do you think this is this is something which actually government should be empowering local areas to get on with and to, to have their own version of? Or is it something actually that if that happens, it will never happen and it needs to be a nationally driven thing? No, I do think it it should be local. Um, I mean, very much of what we've been talking about, in a, in a way, the smaller the social enterprise, the more likely it is to be successful. Yeah. Um, and that means the more likely it is to be local, and particularly starting up. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. and of course, also social enterprises, are, there's a key word there is social. It's very much part of the community. And when I talk about community interest companies, um, for example, as a former social enterprise, well, they, you know, it, that's referring to the community, the, yes. society, the local society. So um, I think very much these, the focus of these ideas should be local. 
The problem, of course, always is that um, they will require some funding. Um, most of the measures I've suggested so far do require some financial support. But some of them don't. I mean, it's changing the planning rules and so on. Um, that can be done locally without any kind of uh, uh, without any kind of resources. But the rest does require resources. And always the problem about uh, local go- things happening locally is that some local authorities have far more resources than others. Yeah. And so if you're ever thinking of a kind of national program uh, that's delivered locally there's always going to be massive inequalities, differences. And then people will start complaining. They'll start talking about postcode lottery uh, and so on. Um, It's very difficult to reconcile a national service with local services. Yeah. The idea of a national service, I should say, with local devolution. I think that's a tension really that, one simply cannot resolve. I think I think one would actually move to, I'd like to see us move into a world where there are much greater powers from uh, local government, vis-a-vis central government. I mean, even things like the health service. I'm Originally, when they started off the health service, you know, the, the idea was it was going to be locally government financed. Um, only the doctors' union said that they would uh, uh, they would go on strike. If it was right. Okay. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, yes. I, I know Aaron Bevan had to... Um, engage in uh, uh, lots of negotiations about that and had to be national Um, but I think I think there's a strong case for many of these things being local however there'd have to be some form of equalizing the resource base yes there'd have to be some sort of redistribution in there somewhere because I think uh, the the areas which would need this the most are the areas where the council has already had to spend the most and the least resources available, probably. But the Chancellor has announced a four billion pound levelling up fund, so there's some hope there for sure. And something, yes. yeah. And it'll be really interesting to see how the government allocate that or invite proposals to use that. So that's going to be coming in the new year, and that that'll be really interesting. Um, Julian, as a, as a final question. On on almost any measure, this has been one of the hardest years on record. So what are your hopes for next year? Well, I'm not as pessimistic as most people seem to be. I mean, I was listening to the chairman of the Office of Budget Responsibility on the radio recently talking about the permanent scarring of the economy and so on. But it seems to me that actually I can't see any reason why it won't rebound quite quickly once the lockdowns are uh, are lifted. It's not as if we've actually done massive damage to the, it's not like the productive parts of the economy have been bombed or destroyed in some way. They're all still there. I think there's a, a real opportunity here to, if it isn't too ambitious, to, to rebuild capitalism. We've had an experience, um, a, a, a communal experience in many ways, experience of, uh, that has pulled us all together in a way. And, and it's enabled expressions of community spirit, um, encouraging feelings of altruism, feeling concern, care for others. Um, and this coincides with the sort of the, the developments that we were talking about earlier, the growth of the hybrid uh, hybrid organisations, organisations that just simply aren't concerned with enriching the people who uh, who uh, develop the business or whatever, but who are concerned about making a, 
a, fa- a social impact, an environment, a better environmental impact. Um, yeah. And it may just be that we that the the combination of these two things, this thing that was happening already, this growth of hybrid economy, and this uh, this new kind of communal spirit that's developed post COVID might enable, might give a real impetus towards the growth of a what might be a, a better and a more humane and environmentally yeah. friendly capitalism. Great, thank you, Julian. That's all we we have time for, and I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed the conversation. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, um, and let's hope that. Um, that things progress in the way that we both would like to see. Well, I certainly hope so. The main takeaway for me from this conversation was Julian's thoughts and ideas around the hybrid economy and the idea of hybrid organisations which can exist within that type of economy. Organisations that have the dual aims of being financially sustainable and successful, but also with a social purpose as well. Now, obviously, we've had social enterprises and charities around for a long time. But what Julian's really talking about here is using this opportunity where local areas are putting a lot of effort into recovery to really support and emphasize the importance of developing the right type of recovery which is much more social, much more cooperative, and ultimately will make a local area much more resilient. And I think these thoughts will strike a chord with many council leaders across the country. And the final thing which really struck me was just the optimism that Julian has for the future. Um, It was certainly the type of uplifting conversation which I was really pleased to have right now. So that's all for this episode, and please remember to subscribe on the website to never miss a future episode.